You know, I love that song that we just sang. It's one of my favorites. One of the lines I, I really love in that song. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know the voice of him who ruled them while he was below. Remember the disciples in the boat with Jesus? Let us go to the other side. And yet in the midst of going across to the other side, they think think instead of going over, they're going under. The storm has come up and raged against them. They don't know how to swim. They think they're all going to die. And they wake up Jesus in a panic. He says, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you care, the one who will die for them? And he says, peace, be still. The waves and the winds knew his voice then, and they know his voice still. And just being reminded of that, and it's a gentle reminder in a song that is often in the times of greatest hurt, it's a a well-spoken but gently spoken reminder is what I most need. We're in the midst of the book of Job. Can I trust God in the midst of the stuff of life? Can I trust God? Can I help another to keep trusting God in the midst of trouble? Because trouble will come, won't it? In the midst of that inch, there will be much trouble. In fact, Job says, man was made for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Trouble comes. Jesus said that in this world, you will have tribulation. But he says, be of good courage. I have overcome the world. How can I help someone who is hurting? When somebody is to ask you, why has God allowed this to happen? What can you answer? What should you say? What if somebody is angry with God? You've encountered that, right? They say, no, 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 don't talk to me about God. I am angry with God. God has done this and this and this, and I don't even want to hear it. I'm angry with God. What if you're angry with God? Have you been there? I've been there. I've been there at a time when I decided I, I, I'm giving up on praying. God is not hearing me. God is certainly not answering according to my expectations. That's a miserable place to be, by the way. I do not recommend it. But what do you need when you are angry with God? What do I need? How do we respond to the troubles and trials that are going to come in life, whether they're my own or what do I need, whether they're others, what do they need from us? Maybe they need sympathy. Maybe they need empathy. Maybe they need a call to repentance. Maybe they need judgment for the sin that has caused that trouble. Well, one thing I can assure you of, don't trust your own perspective. Don't lean on your own wisdom here. Proverbs tells us that. Lean not on your own understanding, your own wisdom, your own perspective, but trust who God is in all your ways. Acknowledge Him. Help others to trust who God is. In the book of Job, and I'm going to do a bit of overview this morning. I, I promised you that we were going to um, be, and if you get the BP blast, so we're going to be working through chapters about 3 to 27 this morning. That's a pretty big chunk. We're not going to stand and read all of that together. You're welcome. 
I'm not going to try to preach and explain through those chapters because I also promised you there was a missionary, a global partner's lunch, not a global partner's dinner. So I want to summarize this and I'll explain why, why I, along the way I've taken this big chunk and we're just going to summarize it and dip in in the middle just to understand what's happening here. I'll explain that along the way, but first, Job's world has collapsed. And we see that through chapters 1 and 2. His great loss, everything that he holds dear except his own life has been stripped away from him. And in the midst of that, Job is experienced. Job is, is going to express some anger with God here. Job has gaps between his expectation about what God should do and his experience in what God at least has allowed or that God himself has done to him. Job is in the midst of very serious grief. We should not be surprised at that. Take your grief cycle chart out if you have one of those, if you've applied that before. Use that here because that's where Job lives now. Job is in a grieving process. He, he focuses on why in the midst of this cycle of grief, and yet he needs to focus on who. Who can he trust? Who is God? Because his experience is in danger of redefining his perspective about God. He needs to remember who his God is. So first of all, whether you're the one sitting in the pain or whether you're the one coming to be helpful, don't trust your own perspective. Job's friends come along. Look at the end of chapter 2 and two verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Good for them. Well done. That's exactly what they should do. They should come and be with him. That ministry of presence. They should extend sympathy or empathy and extend comfort to him. And verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And I take it at that distance still, they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and they threw dust on themselves and they joined in grieving for his suffering. There's a sincerity there. And then they come near in verse 13, and they sat with him on the ground. Seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. They sit with him. They weep with those who weep, just as Paul in Romans 12 tells us to do. In fact, Job in chapter 13 is going to call them back to that. Job is going to say, oh, that your wisdom would be silence instead of all these words. Oh, that you would be wise enough to just please stop talking. So if I can give you a little relief, first of all, when a dear friend of yours has suffered loss, when there, a tragedy has come, don't worry about, well, I don't, know, I don't want to go because I don't know what to say. Just go and be with. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to have an answer. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. But 
they easily jump into fault-finding, problem-solving mode. They can't, they, they can't seem to help themselves. Now, maybe they're provoked by Job's emotional outburst in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Job unloads finally. He's been sitting there seven days, and he, he's got to say something. Let the man be heard. They, he regrets the day of his birth. He wishes his life was over. He looks to the day of his death when, when evil no more afflicts people. No more oppression or affliction, suffering or trouble. He's in a grief cycle. He's angry with God. He's angry with life. He's ready for it to all be over. Don't be shocked by an emotional outburst of imperfect faith of someone in grief. But maybe they're just engineers. They can't help themselves but problem solve. Maybe they're just men. Some of you will know what I'm talking about when I say this. Men, it's not about the nail. If you have no idea what I'm talking about... You can Google that later. It's not about the nail. Job's friends seek to give a rational response to an irrational emotionally, emotional complaint. What can go wrong with trying to give a, a logical, rational response to an irrational complaint? Emotion is irrational. They're going to pass each other. That's guaranteed. But they speak from their own perspective rather than speaking God's truth. Eliphaz, Eliphaz is going to speak from his experience, even a spiritual experience. But your interpretation of experience and how things work doesn't guarantee that it's true. It's your perspective on experience. In fact, it's your perspective on your limited experience. That's not a guarantee if it's true. Even a spiritual experience. You may have a spiritual experience, but did you know this? Not every spiritual experience is from God. There's all kinds of spiritual experiences out there. Come with a team to India one year and you will see some spiritual experience. You will see some spiritual reality that is not from God. Eliphaz actually describes, he gives us a glimpse into a little bit of where he gets some of his answers from. Look at chapter 4 and verse 12. Now word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, and when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all of my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up. Mine too. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. Apparently not like that very clear manifestation of the angel of the Lord. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? This spirit scoffs at the idea, of course not. But that's not what God said. God said, have you considered my servant Job? There is none blameless and upright as he is. Fearing God and turning from evil. God's own decree. In fact, six times it's declared in Job 1 and 2 that, that, that Job is blameless and upright, a man of integrity. The Spirit doesn't think so. No man could be. This is Satan's denial of Jesus' miracle, that the Lord is my Redeemer. Even 
Look at verse 18, rather. You get a little more of his his own gripe. Even in his servants, God puts no trust. And even in his angels, he charges them with error. Oh, this is an angelic spirit being that has some gripe with God of charging this angelic spirit being with rebellion or error. Okay, now we're getting a little bit clearer on what's going on here. And then verse 19, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. If God doesn't even esteem his angels, that God would rebuke and correct his own angels, I think Satan says, or one of his ilk, then how far less would God care about these mere humans in mortal bodies of clay who are destined to the dust and who are worthy of being crushed like a bug? That is not God's view of humanity. That is Satan's view of humanity. And that's the spirit that has informed Eliphaz's thinking. I I spent a little time on that just to say, you're going to run into people all kinds of places and all kinds of different topics that say, but I had this spiritual experience. There's all kinds of spiritual experiences. It doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's from God. It may be a lie. It could be from somewhere else. How do we know? We go back to God's truth. And we compare everything against that. Okay, so we, we're careful about judging, uh, trusting our own perspective. Eliphaz, even our own experience, Eliphaz speaks from experience. Bildad is going to speak from tradition. Everybody knows. It's common sense that. The only problem is the crowd may be wrong. Oftentimes the crowd is wrong. The thing about common sense is it is common. It is not holy. It is not unique. It is not other, different, God's perspective rather than man's. The wisdom of God is foolishness with men. However, Job's friends, in declaring themselves to be wise, they make themselves foolish. Zophar is going to speak with an overconfident clarity. Everything is black and white for him. It's this or it's that. And so it's very easy for him to rank and sort and stack and determine which category Job must be in, and he's going to say so. I want to give us a caution. We need to be able to speak God's truth to one another. We need to be able to do that. That's, the, that's how God works within the body of Christ, life on life. We expect that if we're going to be in a rock tumbler together, men. And yet, we do so carefully. In speaking God's truth, we need to first of all be careful to accurately handle the word of truth. That I'm not misusing it. Just because you have a big, thick study Bible doesn't mean God gave you that to beat somebody over the head with it. We need to be careful how we handle the word of truth. We need, Paul says in Ephesians 4, to speak the truth in love. We are truthing in love. And in Galatians 6.1, when one has fallen... You who are spiritual are to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you also be tempted. You also are subject to falling. You are subject to pride in somebody else's error. So we might need to speak a word of correction or restoration to somebody else, but we're going to do it gently. The gentleness of a setting of a broken bone. 
That's the image that's used there in Galatians 6. And we're going to do that with humility toward ourselves. A humility that is missing in Job's friends as you read through their discourses. So we don't simplify God down to our understanding. That actually ends up what, what um, Job's friends are doing. Uh, in fact, I'm able to give you a diagram. I've given it to you in your notes already. There's a diagram that basically summarizes Job's friends' perspective. They view Job and his suffering in terms of retribution. This is sort of a key to understand the discourse flow in chapters 4 to 27. The retribution principle is this, that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer because God is a God of justice. And so God gives good to those who are good and God gives bad to those who are bad. That's how the world works because God's in charge of it. And God is good, so he gives good for good, and he gives bad for bad. It's a simple matter of retribution. Doesn't the Bible say, what you sowed, that will you also reap? You don't plant corn and expect to get squash. It doesn't work that way. You reap what you sow. Doesn't, didn't Deuteronomy 28 warn Israel that if they followed in God's ways, then they would experience his blessing in the inheritance he had given them. But if they did not, then God would send his discipline. God would get their attention. And he would do even more to get their attention, even if it mean, meant for a time sending them out of the land into exile in order that he would get their attention and he would bring them back to himself. So when Israel did evil, God would bring bad things upon them. The retribution principle. Well, retribution does work in the world, and yet it's a general principle that does not answer for every circumstance. God's justice is true. God is consistent, but God is not always predictable. That's an important difference. God is consistent, but God is not always predictable. What do I mean by that? Let me show you the diagram of the retribution principle. Don't simplify God. The God is just, God's, the principle of God's justice, and this retribution principle, this is how the world works, good for good, bad for bad. So then, if Job is experiencing bad, Job must be bad. Exactly. That's so simple. Anybody can see it. That's how the world works, right? We've got it all neat and tiny. The triangle must be true. It's a simple matter of geometry. But don't limit God to a cosmic retribution principle who can safely and predictably be managed and manipulated and controlled. I want good things, so I'm going to insert this into the equation, then God's going to do good things for me. And uh, those that don't, well, God, they're going to get bad things, and it's very easy. We all know how to get our bread buttered then. That's exactly what Satan accuses God of how he runs his universe. But what if God cannot be safely, predictably manipulated and controlled? What if reaping and sowing is true, but is delayed by God's long-suffering? What if reaping from sowing is overruled because of God's grace and mercy? Aren't you grateful for that? Think of what you've sown, and think of God's grace and mercy in Jesus 
the forgiveness of our sin and our debt, our guilt and the removal of our shame. In fact, the, the giving, the bestowing upon us a rightness with God that there's no way we deserve or have any claim to. And God has done that graciously for us. He has overruled reaping from sowing based on his grace and mercy. Are you okay with that? What if reaping from sowing is softened by God's loving hand? I would submit to you that it, it is, and I'm so grateful for that. For the sake of clarity, I want to put a, hang a warning sign over these speeches of Job's friends, a disclaimer of sorts. In Job 42.7, Job 42.7, you can jot that down, you can quickly turn to it, but Job 42.7 says this, my anger burns. God now is speaking to Eliphaz and his two friends. He speaks to Eliphaz for all three of them. And God says, my anger burns against you three because you have not spoken rightly of me. He tells them what they did wrong. You did not speak rightly of me. You did not speak truth about me. You, you spoke a caricature of who I actually am. You gave a simplified, automated, algorithm version of who I am to Job, and that is not at all what Job needed. You have misrepresented me. You have made me into an idol of your own creation. You have not spoken rightly of me. It tells us what they should have done. They should have spoken to Job about who God is. Instead, they reduced God to a predictable algorithm that will give outputs from inputs. They must cling to the simplicity of the retribution principle. This is their answer. If we're going to have an answer, this is it. And so, to do so, they force themselves into lies. They must lie about, first of all, who God is. You have not spoken rightly of me. They've instead substituted doctrines of demons, this spirit that comes along and gives its wisdom into Eliphaz. They have lied about retribution itself, how this principle works in the wild. They have lied about how the world works in ways that Job calls them out. Is it true in your experience that the evil always get bad consequences? Very quickly. Soon they catch up. No, Job says the evil take advantage and they misuse and they oppress and they prosper and flourish and they die in seeming comfort and honor. That's not right. Oh, God is just. But his justice is not immediate. It is delayed for all kinds of purposes and I don't know why. They lie about how the world works. It's not true that only the evil suffer and that the good do not suffer. That's not true. They lie about Job. They know him, and yet to keep their triangle together, they've got to call Job himself wicked and evil. But they know him. They know Job's life. And yet they go there, ultimately, to preserve their own understanding what if instead Job's miserable comforters, as he esteems them in chapter 16, what if Job's miserable comforters who have urged Job to fear God, but they've given him no reason to love God? All the commandments are summed up in this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and 
strength, and you will love your neighbors as yourself. That's the goal of the commandments. They've not given him any reason to love God. Be willing to say, I don't know why, but I do know who. That's the difference. It's not about why, it's about who. If we're looking in the, in the book of Job for why people suffer, one answer is given why Job suffers, but that not, isn't necessarily the same answer as your circumstance. We're, Job isn't intended to give us a why people suffer. Job is intended to remind us of who we can trust in the midst of suffering. That I can trust God. So in the midst of this, we need to discern what's false and what's true. And we have this long cycle of speeches. And I was talking to somebody after the first service. They said, because you were going to be preaching on this, I was, I was trying to read through those chapters. I was trying to read through them yesterday, and I just couldn't get through it all. That's the point. It's supposed to wear you out. They seem to go round and round in circles, talking past each other and arguing with each other. And at first, it's a little gentler. It's more in the tone of advice. I have, a, I have an explanation of the three cycles. You don't need to copy this down. Because these names and the headings, they're, they're, they're in the book of Job. As you read through it, you keep getting introduced. They keep coming around because there's three cycles of the conversation. One speaks, Job answers. The next one, Job answers. The next one, Job answers. That was so much fun. Let's do it again. But we're going to sharpen the edge a little bit. We're going to move from, from advising to confronting. And one speaks and Job answers. And, one, and the next one and Job answers. The next one and Job answers. And that was so much fun. We're going to do it again, but we're going to raise up the temperature a little more. Now we're going to flat out accuse him. And one speaks and Job answers, and one speaks and Job answers, and wait, what are you expecting? The third speaks and Job answers, right? The cycle is created so that the cycle can be interrupted. It's as if God himself says, enough. It seems that in chapter 28, the narrator intervenes again in the story, and he, he speaks some truth into the circumstances because he himself is fed up with what he's been listening to from Job's friends. It's supposed to wear us out. They're wrong. God tells us at the end of all, you have not spoken rightly. And that's why I think I'm okay summarizing the chapters rather than spending a lot of time working through them. Why would I spend you a whole bunch of your good day explaining to you or spend the next several weeks why Job's friends are wrong over and over again? The, the, the charges ramp up. The comforters are getting more and more emotional and less and less rational. The cycles wear us out. They insist on what they don't know. Job argues back that he's done nothing wrong, and yet God is against them. Their own model doesn't hold up, not for them, not for others. But Job misses that his own model also doesn't hold up. God is not against him. But where is their gentleness? Where is that comfort and empathy that they had for Job at the first Where's the reminder of all who God is? God is not defined merely by his justice. God is defined by his grace and his mercy and his love and his long-suffering. God is not against Job. God is for Job. And that's what they needed to be reminded of. I want to give you, I was thinking about some of the things that are in this, in in swirling together in my head concerning these chapters, and I came up with five Gs. And I thought, that works. We live in a 5G world now, don't we? 
And I don't say I'm going to give you 5G because it's going, to, it's going to be really, really fast. You know me better than that. But I'm going to give you 5Gs. Just 5G will be a, a, a peg you can hang it on. And the 5Gs are, first of all, Job, in the midst of his gap between expectations and experience, who, who, what, what Job expects God would do but compared to what God is allowing, at least, there's a gap in Job's expectations, and Job is, in, is going through very real significant grief. So in the gap, in the grief, we should respond with gentleness, pointing back to who God is and God's grace toward us. Those are the five G's. In the midst of the gap and the grief, don't get your hammer out. No, no. In gentleness, point back to who God is, and His grace toward us. Let's dip into one section where we can see some of what went wrong, and yet some of the wonderful truth that emerges in the middle of it. In chapter 18, we, we step into the middle of, of, the, of the second cycle, and the second speaker, Bildad the Shuhite, answered Job and said, now he's responding to Job's defense after the first comforting attack, Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Oh, he's speaking now out of self-defense. He feels insulted. You who tear yourself in your anger. Remember Job sitting there with a broken piece of pottery, scraping away at these itchy sores and boils on his skin. And his friend seems to be willing even to mock him in his suffering. Who are you to say something to us? You tear yourself in your anger. Shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. The flame of his fire does not shine. It's the wicked who suffer, Job. Remember that. Well, that's not very helpful. It gets worse. Look down to verse 19. Now he says, the one who is the, the, the evil person, the unrighteous man, verse 19, he has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They, are of the, they who are of the west are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Now steal yourselves for this one. The, the audacity here, the harshness, the brutalness of it is shocking. But what, what Job's friend is poetically saying is, Job, your children died because this is what happens to the unrighteous. That is a lie from hell. The enemy has brought this on. There's something way bigger beyond the scene. And his simplified answer, and the way that he clings to it, even at Job's hurt, is shocking. Now let's skip over Job's reply here, and let's go over to Zophar just to catch one more friend in action. Fortunately, this will be the last time we'd hear from Zophar. But Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure. I hear correction, rebuke from Job that insults me. And out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. 
Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless is but for a moment, and it comes to an end? And Job, that's what you're experiencing. They don't say it directly. They're saying, they're saying it poetically. But Job doesn't miss the point. And look again how his own self-defense, because he feels challenged by Job's response. And so they double down in a hurry to defend themselves rather than hear Job's plea for mercy. Let's hear Job. Look back at, verse, at chapter 19. Job answers his first friend. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? Even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. I cry violence, but I'm not answered. Job is, Job is longing to be heard. He feels like God is not hearing him. Job's, Job has a gap in his, he needs to be reminded of what he knows about God, but Job is not despaired. Job has not lost his hope. But listen to his cry to his friends in verse 21. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, oh my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? God may have his reasons, but why you, my friends, why do you pile on? Why are you not satisfied with the groanings of my flesh? And then, one of my favorite parts of the book, Oh, that my words, he said, were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Or that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in a rock forever. Oh, that my words were written in a book. You know the irony of Job's iron pen? Here it is. Job had no idea, but his words are written in a book. And the story of his troubles and the glimpse that we're given into the fuller reason above earth, even in heaven, of how some of this has come about. All of that has been written down so that we would know, out of Job's friend, we'd learn something about what not to do. That which in this kind of grief does not satisfy, but what does help? Well, Job gives himself a little help here. He says, for I know, and I want history to know this. He says, I wish this was written down, that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him. Even after my body has been destroyed, my eyes shall behold him and not another. My heart faints within me. Job has a hope in a future that's longer than his present life. Job has a confidence in God who will be his redeemer. And some want to say, oh, but Job's so early. There is not yet a well-defined understanding of a resurrection hope. Abraham had that same hope in the resurrection. Abraham knew that he could believe God's promise even if it meant that God would raise his son Isaac from the dead to fulfill it. God tells us that in Hebrews. Job also knew that his redeemer lived and that he would stand upon the earth, and that Job in his flesh would one day see him. Job does hold on to a faith in God. 
The cycle's finally cut short. We can endure Eli, Billy, and Zophar only so far. We know that God is allowing even this suffering. God is allowing even these trials, from both from the adversary and from his comforters. But Job is not merely a pawn in a heavenly chess match. God is not merely a resource to recompense right and to punish wrong. Even though God will do that, but it's not on our terms. And certainly it's not always in our timing or expectations. But we can trust God who is working for your good. We can, in the midst of it, we can trust God that He is working for our good. What is God doing in heaven? Well, that's easier for us. We saw that. Job didn't see that, but we see what God is working in heaven. God is doing something bigger than Job realizes. But what is God doing in Job's life? Well, that's a little harder. That's a little harder to pinpoint down. But one clue we get later is when Job himself says, I have heard of you, but now I have seen you. And I repent of those previous words. Job needed to see God. What Job needed was to be reminded of who his God is. How does God use fiery trials for good? Well, Peter tells us something about that. It was Peter that told us what the enemy is up to, that he walks about seeking whom he may devour. It's Peter that tells us that we should not be surprised at fiery trials that come upon us. And it's Peter, as we read earlier, that reminds us of what God is doing even in the midst of those fiery trials. Verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1 again. What we read earlier. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. God just doesn't do this just for fun. God does just throw a few trials around just to see what will happen. No, this is if necessary. And it's for a little while, though it seems forever. It's for a little while in comparison to the day that we await when there will be no more tear, no more grief, no more death. We long for that day. And sometimes one of the things of the troubles of this life, one of the things God allows those to work in us is a longing for His better day that this life can never fully satisfy, even when it's at its best. Our hearts long for more in a restored relation and experience with Him. But if necessary, for a little while, you are grieved by various trial, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, like Job's, that genuine faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that praise is for the one who is tested. That honor and glory that God bestows are for the one who endured a trial and yet trusted God in the midst of it. These are the times that try our souls and test our faith. And yet, I can trust God. I don't understand why. I don't have to understand why. I can trust that my God is working somehow for good and I will trust myself as Jesus did in his hands. Not my will, but thy will be done. I need to hurry. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice in joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And God will work that outcome. God will do his work of, of refining us more and more into the image of his son. The story is told in this image of gold refining that the heat is turned up and the gold, though somewhat cloudy and opaque, the, the impurities rise to the surface and that dross can be skimmed off and cast to the side. And then a little more heat and more impurities rise and a little more heat and more impurities rise. And the, the refiner of the gold, the goldsmith knows that his work of refining is done when he looks into the molten gold, and there he sees his own clear reflection. And that likeness of Christ is what God, if necessary through trouble, is what he is working in us. I can't tell you exactly how, but I can tell you that his purpose for you is good because he loves you. God so loved you that he gave his son Jesus for you. And Jesus himself endured the worst of trials of all of humanity's guilt and sin and wickedness put on him for our sakes. And he bore all of that even into death and separation from God the Father so that he might bring those who would believe in him, who would trust his forgiveness, he would bring them back to God. That's God's purpose. And it took suffering in his son of an intensity and an eternal value and weight that we can't quite fathom. And yet, in light of that, God, if you loved me that much, I will have to trust you in this. I may not know why, but I do know who. I am safe on this solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. I am confident that the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while below. And if trials come only to cause me to cry out all the more, come Lord Jesus. Maybe that's what my heart needs. Would you pray with me? Father, we trust you in the midst of suffering. This is a long section in your word. And Lord, it would wear us out. But Lord, that is not unlike the troubles that wear us out, that weigh on our souls. And so God, would you help us to trust you? In the midst of the troubles that are being faced right now within this body of your saints, Lord, we ache, we hurt, we cry out. We are hiding some of the herb because we don't know what other people around us would think. Oh God, we need your mercy, we need your comfort. And Lord, would you use us gently, carefully, lovingly, one to another to not be quick to rush to the wrong, not to be quick to assume that confession is needed, but to be quick to say, well, I don't know for sure why, but I do know who that we can trust ourselves to no matter what. The one who loved us 
and gave himself for us. Lord, let us do that. Let us be that comfort, messengers of Jesus himself to one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.